Welcome to Unlocked with Jordi Karlinski. My name is Jordi Karlinski, and I'm a former professional athlete turned real estate agent based out of Aspen, Colorado. In this podcast, I interview business and real estate professionals, coaches across many industries, and other athletes to deliver educational and life-changing content. If you are someone who has a thirst for personal and business development, who seeks growth in all aspects of your life, and who wants to dive deeper into real-life current events as they relate to business and real estate, then this is the podcast for you. Welcome to episode number six of Unlocked with Jordi Karlinski. I am your host, Jordi. And if you are new to the show, first off, thank you so much for tuning in. Your support means the world to me. And secondly, please do go visit episode number one of my podcast. I think that'll give you a bit of insight into my backstory and who I am and how the heck I got here to be a podcast host and a full-time real estate agent. So I highly recommend revisiting episode number one if you haven't already. But to get back to episode number six, we talk about all things commercial real estate with consumer behaviors shifting due to the pandemic, hello, work from home, takeout, and minimizing time spent indoors and around other people. Does the outlook look good for commercial real estate? Not only does Drew Isaac, my guest, answer these questions and so much more on the current state of commercial real estate, he also gives great insight into investing in commercial real estate, the different risk factors involved, the hot new markets across the nation, and what some of the better investment opportunities are now in the midst of a pandemic. I found this episode very fascinating, and I hope you do too. To introduce my guest, Drew Isaac, he is a Senior Vice President Investments and Senior Director of the Net Leased Properties Group and National Retail Group based out of Marcus and Millie Chap's Denver office. Drew leads a team of highly qualified professionals focused exclusively on the sale, acquisition, financing, research, and advisory services of retail and net leased investment real estate assets throughout the United States. Drew offers its clients a unique national perspective combined with a deep depth of deal experience. Drew has received numerous awards and recognitions during his time with Marcus and Millie Chap, including sales recognition awards and national achievement awards for many years. He has been the Denver's top investment broker of net leased properties from 2010 to 2018 and the Denver Broker of the Year Award in 2015, 2017, and 2019. Drew is annually recognized by the Denver Business Journal and the Denver Metro Commercial Association of Realtors annual heavy hitters list. I'm very pleased to welcome my guest, Drew Isaac, to the show. All right, so I'm so excited to welcome Drew Isaac of the Isaac Group to this episode. Me being in residential real estate and seeing how the pandemic has affected us in recent months to levels that no one ever knew um, has been really fascinating to see. So I'm really excited to dive into the commercial real estate world, especially since consumer behavior and trends are changing before our eyes. 
So I'm pleased to welcome Drew Isaac. Uh, Drew, can you please tell the listeners a little bit more about the Isaac Group and all of the capabilities that you do? Yeah, absolutely. Well, thanks for having me, Jordy. Excited to be here. Um, I work at Marcus and Millichap. Marcus and Millichap is a national commercial real estate brokerage firm specializing in investment sales of commercial real estate assets nationwide. We we handle all asset classes from apartments to office to retail to self-storage, hotels, land, everything you could imagine. My group here is based in the Denver office. We are in the retail and net lease sector. And so we sell primarily retail properties, everything ranging from your smaller single tenant net lease properties like a 7-Eleven, a Chase Bank, a Walgreens, Starbucks, fast food, up to your grocery anchored shopping centers. And so I've got a team of eight um, investment professionals here, and, and we do deals not just only in Colorado, but across the country, but with a primary focus on the Rocky Mountain region. So you you mentioned 7-Eleven, Chase Bank, those big brand names or big corporations. Do you work with any smaller businesses? Dude, the majority of our business are with more national credit corporate tenants. We'll see the smaller local small businesses in our shopping centers. But for the most part, Marcus and Millichap, we do kind of handle more of the national accounts. Okay. And do you, when you're, I guess, bringing these clients to find spaces? Is that how I'm understanding it? No. So we'll actually do investment sales. And so we are selling properties that may have a vacancy in it, but we're matching up buyers and sellers of investment real estate. And so leasing brokers would fill the spaces when there are vacancies. The majority of the properties we sell are usually stabilized um, with tenants in their cash flow operating properties. And it's everybody from your, your private capital investor, your businessman, doctors, dentists, lawyers who want to invest in commercial real estate, but it's not their primary business, to your developers whose full-time job is to, to find tenants, build buildings, and, and improve space, all the way up until your institutional investors, your pension funds, your real estate investment trusts, like private equity groups that are buying you know, large quantities of real estate. Got it. So when you're you're helping these buyers or sellers, and I guess maybe primarily buyers, we're talking about how do you help them evaluate a good return on investment or to make sure that they know they're making a good investment? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the 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 easy part is that real estate is a, a favored investment class for you know a wide swath of investors. And when selling stabilized cash flow properties, it's really the income and, and the durability of that income stream that the property generates that's going to drive values. And so when you know analyzing a property, that's kind of the first thing you look at is you'll you look at the historical profit and loss and see what the income has been historically and projected going forward. The, the real challenge, especially these days, is, is projecting that income forward and, and the durability of that income stream. Um, with so much change going on, you have to make a number of assumptions as to who's going to stay, where rents are going to go, where expenses are going to go. And, and we spend a large part of our analysis looking at that. Okay. And yeah, I would definitely want to dig into that a little bit deeper um, and a little bit here on obviously the current environment we all are living in this day during the pandemic. But on the residential side of real estate, we talk a lot about supply and demand. And if there's low inventory and high buyer demand, it's a seller's market and vice versa. It would be a buyer's market if there's high inventory, low seller demand. Do you, is that the same? Can it be relatable to commercial real estate as well? 
Yeah, absolutely. And I think similar to residential, we've been on a, a 10 year bull run here where very strong demand and, and, and limited supply. So prices have been, you know, historically high for, you know, 10 years now, each year more than yeah. the last. Um, I think a lot of investors out there were thinking that with the pandemic and all the complications associated with it, that there would be distress in the commercial real estate sector and you start to see prices soften. Same thing in the 2008, 2009 downturn. There was a lot of distressed funds and, and folks really kind of reference back to the RTC days of the 90s when the government took over troubled assets and then sold them at fire sale prices. In 2008, 2009, the lenders kicked the can down the road. There wasn't as much distress as everyone was expecting. I think that's even more the case uh, on this come around. Um, I think everyone has empathy for the situation. It's certainly um, unprecedented, as has been said many times. And so in both investors and lenders seem to be working out their problems rather than cutting bait. And so we actually have not seen prices really soften at all across the board. Transactions are down, the amount of volume is down. A lot of folks are waiting to work through issues before transacting, but the transactions that are occurring are really at similar pricing as to where it was pre-pandemic. So still really good demand, probably less supply, which is affecting transaction volume more than it is asset values. Got it, and I would say that echoes what we're seeing in the Roaring Fork Valley with residential real estate, and I'd imagine many parts of the country as well with high demand and low inventory. Um, when it comes to Denver specifically, over the years, how have you seen it evolve in terms of larger businesses moving to Denver? Is it a, is it a primary market? Are people wanting to be in Denver these days? It, it, the growth in Denver, as I'm sure you've, you've seen as well, has just been remarkable. You know, I've been here 17 years now and never expected it to take off the way that it did. It, it, Denver used to be certainly a secondary market and was you know, not on the radar of a lot of the institutional, especially the international capital and the coastal capital. We, it depends on how you defer, define primary term um, or primary market. The, it's certainly rising up. It's not as the same level class A as the coastal markets of you know, New York, Washington, D.C., Miami, Los Angeles, San Francisco, Seattle. But as far as being you know, a market that's in the middle of the country and, and stocking up against everyone else, Denver's right up there now and it's on the radar of a lot of um, institutional and international investors. Why do you think that is? You know, the population growth and I think the quality of the population growth. I mean, you can see the amount of young people and college educated folks that move here for the quality of life. That's really driven employers to move here and to hire here and to relocate here, which has driven apartment developers to build apartments here. And so it's all kind of come together at the right time in the right place to create a, a really you know, desirable investment, you know, environment for investment. And do you think the proximity to the mountains has anything to do with it as well? I think it does from, from a quality of life perspective, you, you know? Yeah. Um, and I think that trend will continue. I mean, it, I'm sure you're seeing it up in the Roaring Fork Valley, the folks coming from San Francisco and New York and the more metropolitan areas um, looking for that outdoor lifestyle and the ability to you know, enjoy the outdoors and, and recreate. And so I think that, that population trend will continue for Denver, which will benefit all sectors. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so in terms of who, I think you, you touched a little bit on international 
brands or businesses, are you, are you seeing them move into Denver? Yeah, that's certainly one of the the major changes in the last, I mean, this last cycle, call it the last five to seven years. But before that cycle, you never really saw international investors coming in and buying office buildings in downtown. Um, certainly that is the case now. Um, if you look at some of the bigger trades, it's your larger you know, international pension funds or investment groups are coming in and, and purchasing core Colorado assets. And that drives pricing across the board. And so it's no longer just a domestic market. There are there are a lot of investors that have Denver on their radar and are, are targeting investments here. That's super interesting. And are you, I mean, I know you also work across the nation. What other cities are big international investing options? Yeah, it, it, I mean, the coastal cities are, have always been on the radar of institutional investors. I think if you follow the population trends, investment trends follow there. And so we see a lot of investor appetite for Texas, um, growing business down there, income, state income tax free, Florida, um, Arizona is doing very well right now, Nevada, Utah and Idaho are very strong markets as well. And I think it's surprising to some folks, if, if you look at Nebraska, incredibly low unemployment, um, good um, earnings, and, and really actually a very stable investment environment. And so I think the whole country as a whole, you know, has, has been doing very well. And, and um, I think that trend will continue. That's super fascinating. Those, you know, I, I don't know much about the international investing world, but um, in commercial real estate, um, and I wouldn't have guessed that those states would have been <laughs> where they choose, but it makes a lot of sense from what you're saying. So you, you gave a good overview of where Denver's been the past 10 years, um, leaning, leading up to 2020 and specifically, more specifically, what, what was happening early 2020 when COVID had already hit the international countries and, you know, globally it had hit and it, and it wasn't super prevalent on the U.S. shores yet. What were your initial thoughts when you first started hearing about COVID and were you nervous? What were you thinking? Yeah, I mean, I think I'm not sure how it was up in, in the mountains, but down here, it, it the, what surprised me was how quickly it hit. I mean, it was I can't remember the exact day where, you know, we went home on a Friday and, and even the attitude then was, wow, this is, you know, interesting, but but is it really going to affect us and then we didn't go back to work on Monday I mean it really seemed to happen yeah. over a weekend where everything just shut down um certainly you know an unprecedented challenge I think everyone was just trying to figure out you know what do we do and so what you saw right out of the gate which was companies go into cash preservation mode and so being shut down, you, you have all these obligations that are out there. Tenants are obligated to pay rent, landlords are obligated to pay their lenders. And without knowing the length of the shutdown, very quickly folks just started hoarding cash and, and tenants just stopped paying rent out of the necessity to just, hey, let's conserve our cash flow because we don't know how long we're going to be without operating revenue. And, and that caused landlords to say, hey, do, do I have to make my loan payments? And so, mm -hmm. There was this almost freezing or lack of contract law at the beginning of this thing that I think was really surprising and no one really knew how to navigate that. Do you go the legal route and put your tenant in default and try to pursue that? Well, the courts weren't open. You didn't know when the courts were going to be open and also not an empathetic approach to doing so. So I think 
there was that panic at the beginning as to, you know, what do we do? And I think the real challenge was nobody knew how long it would last for. And so April, May, there was a lot of that. I think kind of in June, July, we all got a handle of, hey, there is an end to this thing. Um, and kind of put the genie back in the bottle and let's get back into conformance with our contractual obligations. And, and there's been a number of modifications that, that have taken place, but at least it's with a goal of getting back to, to everyone moving forward in the same direction. What are some of those modifications that are in place? So a, a lot of tenants ask for rent relief, which is understandable when you're closed down. The, the flip side of the argument is, you know, the landlords have to make their debt payments. And so right. what was really, I think, beneficial and surprising, and I think 0809 taught us all a, a lot of lessons that I think were employed in this pandemic, in that lenders very, almost across the board, very quickly agreed to defer principal and interest payments on commercial loans, usually for 90 days. And so really kind of once everyone got on board with the exception of a very few lenders or CMBS debt, that's impossible to restructure. It was the right business decision to defer 90 days of, or three months of payments. Um, and that gave the flexibility to landlords to pass on some rent relief to their tenants. What, you know, once, you know, the original panic was calmed down. A lot of landlords then thought and tenants thought, hey, how can we, if we're going to just, you know, forgive some rent for a little bit here, how can we modify the lease? That's a win-win for everyone. And so a lot of folks um, either lowered their rent, but in exchange, they maybe got longer lease terms. Or okay. if there was some cleanup item contractually that they had been looking for, this was the opportunity to, to, to redo their lease. The Panera Bread real estate manager really kind of crystallized it for me. It was, a, it was an asset that was actually a performing asset. It had a drive-through. So it, it was open. It was doing well. It really wasn't affected by the pandemic. But all these tenants had reached out to all their landlords to kind of restructure all their leases. And I said, well, why, why are we even talking about this? I mean, this store is doing well. Well, what do we need to do here? And he said, Drew, you're right. The store is doing well. But I'm doing seven years of lease renewal work in three months. I've got my CEO's attention on our entire portfolio. And so even though there's not a need to do something here, if there's a win-win we can put together, this is the time to do it because we're just approving deals. And we put together a deal that, that made sense for everyone. And I think a lot of that in, in June, July, you know, August, the conversations were more, how can we put together a mutually beneficial structure here to, to going forward rather than just how do we stem the bleeding, which it was in April and May. Yeah. Well, that, I mean, it sounds awesome that it seems like there was a bit of a mutual agreement between parties, whether it's the landlord and the tenant and you to help bring a mutual decision together. So both people can benefit and, you know, won't be out of business. I know here we, we, some of the local businesses have been affected and some of the restaurants and whether that was because landlords weren't willing to work with the tenants or what, um, I'm sure there's a lot of factors that go into it. But what's been interesting to me in in speaking of the local mom and pop retailers, you know, going into a recession or trouble times, as a shopping center owner or investor, you would think that the more class A, you know, more credit tenants that you have, the better off you are in worse times. I mean, that's why these properties traded at a premium. We, um, I'm in the institutional 
property group here at Marcus and Melichap, and there's one group in every market, and we at sell shopping centers, and we hop on a phone call um, usually monthly, but but during um, the pandemic, we, we moved into a weekly Friday call. And one of the things we were tracking to begin with was rent collections and just what our clients were telling us about what percent of their rent owed that month were they collecting from their tenants. And what was really surprising to me was class A, your best of the best shopping centers with your Lululemon tenants and your, you know, the roster that you want, rent collections were about 40, 45%. If you look at your C-class, maybe more tertiary, with all mom and pop, local tenants, small businesses, rent collections were 70 to 80%. Wow. The small businesses seem to you know, almost operate better than, than the national tenants that maybe took advantage of the situation a little bit. You know, A small business will, will do everything they can to keep the doors open and to get creative and to, to make things work. Um, and, and that... That trend I did not expect, and, and I wonder how that affects it going forward. I mean, if you're paying a premium for credit tenants, but but they don't, you know, honor their obligations when they don't have to, um, what what's the point of the premium? And I think there, right. hopefully, that will result in, um, you know, more investor appetite for mom and pops. And I know there's a lot of challenges out there right now, but um, the ones that make it through to the other end um, will be in good shape. Have you seen? Some businesses, commercial businesses, shut down in Denver. Yeah, I mean downtown Denver is probably the most starkest example of it. Um, a lot of restaurants closed down, a lot of space closed down, but but it's it's great space, and so you know that this is not a a permanent shutdown. Right. Um, I think more on the suburban tertiary market, a, a Golden Corral client um, said to me, "Well, operates you know a couple hundred Golden Corrals across the country," and said. Um, I said, how's business? I mean, I was, you know, worried about him. I mean, the, the, the buffet concept um, right. is not desirable in a pandemic. It's an older clientele. And so certainly out of all the restaurant brands, Golden Corral got hit the hardest. I said, Drew, look, sales may not come back to where they were. Sales may come back to 90% of where they were pre-pandemic. But 50% of my competitors are going to go out of business. Mm -hmm. And so when that restaurant pie comes back, It'll be a smaller pie, but we think we'll get a bigger share of it. And so he said the key is just to make it through to the other side. And the ones that are still standing will benefit from it and should have, you know, record sales um, as soon as this thing opens back up. Yeah, that's really, I mean, that's a great outlook. And I think really fascinating too, just tapping into the mindset of some of these business owners and, or uh, I guess, you know, large chain managers to to see what they're thinking and how to get through this period of time with so much uncertainty in your opinion are there some better opportunities today to invest in if you are looking at commercial real estate compared to beginning of the year 2020 yeah i mean i think it's always a good time to to buy or sell commercial real estate we like to say as brokers and commercial real estate's always you know a desirable investment i i think there's always been good commercial real estate investments. I think what's changed are there's some probably some areas that that in this exact moment investors are avoiding. And so you're you know the the thinking going into the pandemic or pre-pandemic was experiential re retail. You know retail you know e-commerce resistant. Everyone's worried about Amazon and, and that effect on business and physical retail. And so fitness, um, you know theater, childcare you know, full service restaurants, bars, 
were a desirable, you know, asset class. Those have obviously been affected the most by the pandemic. And so really difficult to gauge the probability of theater or fitness, you know, 24 hour fitness currently in bankruptcy. Um, there's been a lot of expansion in that space. Um, so right when they were all expanding, you know, trying to gobble up market share, the, the faucet shut off. And so that's a very challenging industry right now. Kind of same thing on the childcare, great underlying business, a lot of expansion in the space, a lot of growth, faucet shut off. And so for the most part, investors are avoiding those. Uh, demand's the same now. So half the supply is offline. The, the other part of the supply has probably been a benefactor of the pandemic. And that's your grocery, um, you know, Walmart, Safeway. Um, Whole Foods, Amazon Grocery, which is coming soon, your discount stores, your Dollar General Family Dollars, your pharmacies, Walgreens, and then um, quick service restaurants. I mean, yeah. our, our firm, and I pulled this number, this is a, a couple month old number now, but it was like April 15th to July 15th. So this was pandemic results, sold 175 restaurant properties. Only 14 of them were full service sit down restaurants. The rest were quick service restaurants with drive-thrus. In a normal year, that number is half and half. And so the demand for drive-through restaurant properties, whether it be a Starbucks, a Dutch Brothers, or a fast food restaurant, um, it, that has changed. And, and that is in high demand right now. And I think that's a trend that will continue going forward. We're doing a, um, a Shake Shack deal here in Greenwood Village, oh, okay. and Shake Shack is going to have a drive-through. Um, even that Golden Corral client is trying to figure out how to put drive-throughs into their buildings. Mm -hmm. I think we'll see more of that trend continuing. Is it's 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 pandemic resistant. I mean, and if you're a municipality, which sometimes are hostile to drive-throughs just due to traffic and perception, um, I think municipalities will be more open to approving drive-throughs going forward. Because if you're sitting there right now, your full-service restaurant tax revenue is way down. But, but drive-through business is up. You know, a fast food restaurant, your typical Taco Bell, Wendy's, Burger King, does 70% of their business through the drive-through. Mm -hmm. Well, their drive-through business is up like 100 and Chick-fil-A. And if you've been to Chick-fil-A lately, their drive-through business is up above and beyond the lost revenue from the diet. So on a whole, their sales are up 105%. But they're saving money on the inside because they have less labor and cleaning for their dining portion. So their margins are actually better. So actually fast food's been a benefactor of the pandemic. And if I could sum it up, I mean, that's really high level. There's winners and there's losers. It's, it's, it's night and day. There's not many folks that are in the middle. You either really been affected um, or you, you kind of benefited from it. It, it. Looking at other asset classes like office, yeah. very challenged right now. Yeah. Um, yeah. You can argue that both ways everyone had moved to the open floor, you know, community offices, not just the WeWorks, but even if you have your own suite, it was blowing out the cubes and kind of communal seating and collaborative. Um, we think that trend will probably go back the other way. And that may cause the need for office space to expand. If you're going to keep your office and not work from home, you need more space to accommodate that. Counter argument, some companies are, are doing the work from home and it's working for them and they may continue that trend. Um, but industrial, the opposite. It, it's, it was hot going into it, and somehow it's gotten even hotter. Um, distribution has taken off in a huge part mm -hmm. of the e-commerce play. Um, and so what was a, a sweepy product type industrial um, has kind of been the darling in the last few years, and, and, and those guys are up right now. 
I want to go back to the office space because that's really fascinating that you said that people think, again, no one has a crystal ball, but you think that the trend might reverse and that it actually might become of like high demand. Why do you think that is? I, I would fall into that camp. And it's a, certainly, you can argue it both ways. And there's folks that, that would be betting against the office right now. But I, I'm a believer that there is a benefit to working in an office. And there's mm -hmm. collaboration, and there's career development that you can maintain at work from home, but difficult to grow without having a, a physical office space. It may trend to more of a suburban office play versus being in the downtown urban core. And, and you, you, we've seen that demand pick up for suburban office versus downtown office. But I, I'm a believer in the physical office. I think it'll come back. And I think companies may need more space because of it, because they should be spread out more, especially if right. there ever is another pandemic, um, you know, giving people the, the space to be able to be in the office. I mean, we're at 50% occupancy here in downtown Denver. Um, but e even if, if we had an open floor plan, everyone's sitting together, you, you couldn't do that. And so I think, again, just like I think retail sales, there's pent up demand that as soon as this thing opens, it's going to come flooding back. Yeah. Um, I think people took for granted maybe going to a happy hour or, or going to be able to shop and things that we all thought was just normal. Um, when, you, when you take it away, I think there's a lot of pent up demand. Yeah. And as soon as things open and stabilize, I think retail sales will take off. And I think there's pent-up demand to, to be in the office. And as soon as things stabilize, companies will build out new spaces and, and office demand may increase. Yeah. And I, I would agree with that because I think just speaking from personal experience, I, I really missed working from the office and having that routine. And, you know, don't get me wrong, being at home is wonderful, but there's definitely something to coming into an office every day, seeing your colleagues. Um, being a part of the company's culture that I think is really important. And um, I do believe also that there is going to be, there is pent up demand. And then as soon as that company allows their workers to go back into the office or retail shops to reopen, I do also think that things will skyrocket. I mean, it's, we're seeing it. We saw it with showings, for example, with within residential real estate, once showings were allowed in May, this, the real estate market just took off to levels we never expected. And, um, you know, we did see this V-shaped recovery with a, you know, significant downturn and then a significant increase. And is that also what you think is going to happen in Denver across kind of all commercial sectors? I think so. I mean, I think the fundamentals that made Denver so strong pre-pandemic still exist. They're yeah. just on pause right now. And so... Um, that seems to be the general consensus um, for most investors. And so it's just kind of a waiting game for that to happen. But um, I mean, it was really hot beforehand. So you, yeah. you can't say that it's, you know, going to be dramatically different. And I've been saying for years, how much better can it get? It keeps getting better. Um, and so I think incrementally it will continue to do that. But I hope that's the one kind of positive takeaway of the pandemic is we all realize the things that we probably took for granted and we'll have more appreciation for them um, going forward. Absolutely. Um, so when it um, comes to, I would imagine that, you know, tech's been on the rise for years in Silicon Valley. And I know like even Google has, I think bought recently within the last few months, leased out some really big office spaces in New York, I've heard. 
Is Denver a tech city? What's happening on that front? You are seeing more tech companies move. I mean, I think the, the population here is heavily educated. It's younger. It, it matches the culture that they're looking for. I think you see a lot of companies um, having their, their, maybe not their corporate headquarters here, but opening a second office here. Boulder, certainly a, a major tech hub. Um, the 36 corridor between Denver and Boulder is one of the least susceptible to natural disaster areas in the country. And so from a tornado, a hurricane, an earthquake, hmm. that corridor right there apparently has the least risk for natural disaster. So that's why you see a lot of data centers and high tech infrastructure being built on that corridor combined with you know the highly educated workforce in Boulder. And so yeah, I think we'll continue to see tech jobs move here. And and you know, San Francisco you know, office space has really been hit hard. And so you see a lot of companies downsizing there. And when you don't have to live, if you can work from home and you don't have to pay San Francisco rents, you see a lot of those employees leaving and living in other parts of the country, whether whether it's Austin or Denver. Um, and, and so, yeah, I, I do think tech will continue to move here and, um, and spread out from the, the hub of Silicon Valley. Do you think that with maybe some of these larger companies downsizing, do you think that they'll break into the communal communal workspace offices like a WeWork, which is obviously no longer, but? Yeah, I would probably, I mean, you never know, right? And I, and I would tend to probably bet against that. I mean, I, I think if you're going to do the WeWork, it's not dramatically different than working from home. It, it, so if you don't have the large team working together, kind of cohesively building and, and networking and, and growing together, then, you know, I think a, a work from home becomes a, an option that's equally attractive to WeWork. So I think I do think you'll see companies coming here and building out office space and, and, and having large kind of offices where all teams can kind of function together. Do you see any room in the future for outdoor malls are people in your i guess experience or if you're talking to consumers or your clients are people more hesitant to be inside going to restaurants going to malls i i think so certainly right now and then the million dollar question is what's the psychological effect of that you know right. once everything does open up and so there's been that trend to kind of more outdoor lifestyle centers for a while now um, you know, I think, but, but even pre-pandemic, 2019 was the first year that no indoor mall was built in the United States of America, no new indoor mall. And so I think that trend was already moving away from your, your kind of small town, clunky um, indoor mall to more lifestyle mixed use centers um, that naturally are just having more outdoor space or are more open and airy. Yeah, I think it'll be really interesting to see the the post effects and, like you said, the psychological effects that consumers take once things and if things ever normalize um, and how their behaviors shift. I, I'm really fascinated to see how that is. And, you know, only time will tell. Um, so part of your capabilities are 1031 exchanges. How... Explain, I guess, to the listeners what that is and how you deal with it on a commercial level. Yeah, absolutely. So the 1031 exchange is a part of the, the Internal Revenue Service Code that essentially if you sell an investment property and you immediately reinvest those funds into another investment property, then you can defer 
the taxes that would be paid from the capital gains tax that would be paid from the sale. You don't waive the sale, you defer them into the next sale. And so the rules are that when you sell a property, you have to reinvest the entire proceeds from your sale. Um, you can't pull any money out or that would become taxable. And you have 45 days to identify replacement properties and you have 180 days to close on that property. The, the reality in practice is that you really kind of have 69 days in practice to reinvest those proceeds. So you're, you're almost simultaneously doing a sale and immediately buying an investment property. Um, it incentivizes reinvestment rather than cashing out. Um, and and it's, a, it's a big part of how um, the wealth has been built in commercial real estate. If you look at the returns you would have to get if you paid the taxes, and instead of having $4 million to reinvest, you have $3 million to reinvest. You'd have to get a substantially much higher return to get the same cash flow as you can as when you're playing with pre-tax dollars. And if you look at it over a long period of time, um, you continue to reinvest tax deferred, you're investing four million instead of three months, which can then grow that much faster. And so it's how a lot of wealth has been accumulated and generated in commercial real estate. Um, it's very, very common that most folks that do sell investment property usually do do a, a 1031 exchange. It's about 80% of the transactions we do involve okay. a 1031 exchange. Would you say, and you know, I don't know if there's, a way to answer this really, but some of your most savvy clients, you don't have to name them, but what are they doing to build their investment wealth? You know, it's everyone, the fun thing about commercial real estate is that everyone looks at everything differently. You know, there's no one way to do it. Um, there are developers who are really in the construction business. I mean, they're building wealth by, by buying a piece of land, building something for somebody immediately selling that and redeploying the capital that's mm -hmm. a that's a full-time job you know that's an active real estate business and and you get rewarded financially for doing so um but to say the opposite approach would be the passive investor who isn't going to be that active they're going to buy quality properties take a lower return and maybe not leverage up as much as some other real estate investors and you, you maybe give up a little bit of upside by not leveraging to the max, but you protect your downside. And you you can make sure that that's just as savvy as the guy that's out there, you know, making the most amount of money, especially right. when the market cycles like this. And so there's there's no one way to do it. There's no one right strategy. Everyone can line up a strategy that makes sense for them. Um, but for the most part, commercial real estate has been a, a great investment for most folks who invest in it. Um, and I think we'll continue to be a favored investment class going forward. Absolutely. And, you know, I guess maybe a better question would have been, are, do you have certain clients that are willing to take on greater risk for a greater reward? Absolutely. And it's just a matter of your profile. I mean, there are guys with a, girls with a very large appetite for risk and mm -hmm. it, it, there's no, no risk, you know, without reward, there's no reward without risk. It's a direct correlation. You know, the, the guys that are making the most money, they're taking the most risk. And you can, you can, you can lose that money as, as much as you can make it. Um, and then there's folks that, that take a, a more conservative approach and they're going to make less money, but they're going to have the, the risk of losing less money. And it really just comes down to what your risk profile is, um, what your you know, global investment portfolio looks like, and really kind of what your investment goals are. 
most folks fall into the more conservative camp and, and aren't don't need to to make enough money to to buy a private jet. They they want to make enough money to fly first class. Yeah. Um, but then there are some folks that want to roll the dice, and um, if you do it right, you can you can get that private jet. So I know you work with a lot of bigger um, businesses and companies, but if what would some advice be for someone looking to start investing in commercial real estate? You know, I think starting small, I think is always good advice. And I think that's true on the brokerage side. If you're starting as a broker as well, you know, start small and, and build from scratch. Um, I think that's how you build any business. Um, get your feet wet and kind of understand what you're looking for and then, and then take that and build upon it. And over time, um, it all adds up. And so I advise and, and prefer to be in the, more, in the more conservative camp. You have less upside, but you have less downside. And that seems to make sense for, for most, most folks. And so, yeah, less leverage, um, kind of no need to hit home runs, go out there and, and hit a few singles to be in. Well, thanks so much, Drew. How, where can people connect with you and get in touch if they have any questions or want to get into commercial real estate? Yeah, um, our, we're marcusmillichap.com. We're, we're out there on the internet. Um, we've got a team of eight here. We answer our phones. Um, we spend a lot of time <laughs> in the office. And so call or email or, or track us down on the internet. Awesome. And I will link everything in the podcast description and the show notes below. Thank you so much for your time. This was super insightful and a great conversation. And uh, we'll talk to you soon. Thanks, Jordy. Thanks for listening. And I hope you enjoyed that episode. If you liked the episode and the show, please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast and share it with friends. As a new podcast, this is the best way you can support the show. To see more about each episode or to connect with me, head on over to my Instagram page at Jordy Karlinski.